for you today. Same as adult Jesus, baby Jesus, all one guy. We've all heard of the author uh, Mark Twain. You know, Mark Twain's famous for uh, being one of the best humorists in American history. There's a Mark Twain Prize that gets given out every year to uh, comedians in Washington, D.C. Mark Twain is well known for saying such quotable quotes as, clothes make the man, naked people have little or no influence on society. Politicians in diapers must be changed often and for the same reason. Let that one sink in. It's like a delayed release. Pull the pin out of the grenade uh, joke. Wrinkles should merely indicate where smiles have been. See, those crow's feet have a purpose, y'all. It's because you've been smiling. Cauliflower is nothing but cabbage with a college education. I mean, he, he just keeps cranking these out. He's really good at this. Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and to remove all doubt. <laughs> I was like that one. But I didn't know this, but Mark Twain wrote the novel The Prince and the Pauper. Uh, it came out in the 19th century. I never knew that until this week, but he did. It was his first stab at historical fiction. And in that book, of course, it has, it has historical truth to it, that there's two babies who are born the same day, and they have a remarkable likeness to each other. They almost look the exact same. One of them is a poor pauper named Tom Canty, grown up in the slums of London, has an alcoholic dad, um, super poor and destitute. And the other boy that looks just like Tom is Edward VI of England, son of Henry VIII, the king of England. And these boys cross paths, they decide to switch places, sort of like the parent trap, but not really, sort of like Freaky Friday maybe, I don't know. But they switch places, and then the, the prince becomes a pauper and lives in that life, and the people of London treat him horribly, not knowing that they're brushing shoulders with the future king of England. And when we read the Apostles' Creed, we see the third line of this today. We are being told that really royalty has entered the world, but the world did not recognize it when he came uh, as a human being. And even now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, of his presence that can be known to anyone at any time, we can forget and not know that, that the presence of the king, we could be rubbing shoulders with him, but we might not recognize it. So here's the third line of the Apostles' Creed, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And as we did last week, we uh, stood to say this together, and we'll do it again. And uh, if you're not necessarily a religious person or a longtime churchgoer, uh, don't be weirded out. This is just what Christians have always done for thousands of years. When we stand to affirm a creed, we're not just saying the words. What we're really saying is, I affirm that, and I reject the opposite, that when you make these definitive claims, these extraordinary statements of this creed that are all based in Scripture, we are affirming the truths of what God has said already and that we affirm today as well and that we do indeed reject the other ideas of Jesus, the, the notions we covered last week. If you missed it, you can go back and listen to it. So let's stand together and, and read this as one body. And if you're at home, please do the same. If No one's going to think you're crazy. Uh, just read it if you're in your living room or whatever as we uh, recite this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. 
From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Thank you. You may be seated. Amen. Sorry. <laughs> so as we uh, just said, you know, we could very, we, the earth has been brushing shoulders with royalty, especially when Jesus was born. And interestingly enough, in Isaiah chapter 53, a, a, a text that was written nearly 1,400 years before Jesus was born, the, the prophet Isaiah prophesied that this would actually happen, that this, the Savior would come and people would not recognize him. The king had arrived. Isaiah 53, 1. Who has believed what we've been saying? Who has seen the Lord's saving power? His servant grew up like a tender young plant. He grew up like a root coming up out of dry ground. He didn't have any beauty or majesty that made us notice him. There wasn't anything special about the way he looked that drew us to him. People looked down on him. They didn't accept him. He knew all about pain and suffering. He was like someone people turned their faces away from. We looked down on him. We didn't have any respect for him. Remarkable. And then in John chapter 1, the apostle John reiterates this truth. John 1, starting in verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The word was in the world, and the world was made through him, as we talked about last week, that the, it's through the Son of God that creation has come to exist. But the world did not recognize him. He came to what was his own, but his own people did not accept him. Some people did accept him and did believe in his name. He gave them the right to become children of God. So royalty has come into the world, but to have all people recognized it. I think God wants all people to, but not everybody does. It always fascinates me that, that God uses ordinary people to accomplish his will. He uses everyday people. We can look at biblical characters and think, well, they're in the Bible, I'm not. But they are just regular people. If you look at, obviously, someone like Abraham and Sarah, uh, David, Ruth, Esther, Peter, I mean, you go on and on. God used everyday people to change the world, and God could use you to change the world as well. Using the faith that you have, God changes the world through people just like you and me. And who does God use to change the world, particularly in this line of the Apostles' Creed? Well, obviously, it's Mary. We know through Mary. Aside from Pontius Pilate, Mary is the only other person, human being, named in the Apostles' Creed, and Mary is the only person of faith named in the Apostles' Creed. Last week, of course, we heard that Jesus is Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the son of God, which means that he is of God. He's one with God, and he's also Lord. He's Lord of all creation, all heavens, all earth. He's co-eternal and co-substantive with the Father and the Spirit of the triune God. And now we're going to see Luke chapter 1, which is a Christmas text. We only read this at Christmas, so if you're not a big-time churchgoer or anything, um, this is what happens at Christmas. We always read Luke 1, where an angel visits Mary and tells her, a lot's about to happen, Mary, um, when she was maybe 15 years old or so, young girl. This is what we read every year. So we're going to look at Luke 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, that's Mary's cousin, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. Angels always just have a message, and they relay what God has told them to say. The word angel means messenger. A, to a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. 
She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. The, the Messiah would be born through the line of David, as was foretold. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, I would be, wouldn't you? Confused and disturbed. I think you got ahead of me. You go back. Mary tried, oh, I think we're cut off. Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. So that takes out the whole birth name stress for mom, which is nice. You don't have to look through the book or look on the internet. You know exactly what to name your baby. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. There we see the name, other name. He is the Son of God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. We'll get to this in a second. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of God will never fail. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you've said about me come true. What a response from Mary. So what you hear about this idea of conceived by the Holy Spirit. I wish I could get into the how of that, but no one can. We should be comfortable with mystery. Mystery is okay, especially when it comes to the work of God. We can't just, I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers about that. There's, there's There's a wonder, a holy mystery to how God does certain things. The how of conceived by the Holy Spirit. (laughs) I don't really know, but what I can say is in general, every conception is really a miracle, if you think about it. Those of us that have had children, I know I can attest to that. It's just a miraculous thing, this little person that didn't exist nine months ago. Here they are. You know, and so it's not that much of a leap that God who created all laws and rules could also do whatever he wants, because it's God and he can do what he wishes. So what I'll get into more is the why. Why would God choose um, to have Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit? That the king, the prince, if you will, had come for conquest. That's really the why. To, uh, to restore and renew human beings into the image of God. The why is that he came for conquest, but not in the way we expected. Probably the greatest, the greatest conquest um, Ever, ever carried out was what we just celebrated uh, last two weeks ago, D-Day. It was the largest um, seaborne landing in history. A staggering number of vehicles and equipment was used. At the initial landing, 150,000 American troops and British and Canadian took to various beaches on that day. Uh, over 7,000 vessels, 4,000 landing craft, 12,000 planes. I mean, let that sink in, the number. You can look at pictures of these. It's just an astounding amount of, just an armada. Because Hitler's uh, advisors knew, they told him, if they take the beach, we can't stop them. We have to push them back into the ocean. It's the only way we'll keep them out. And so they knew that once they made that beachhead, it was going to be over. So that the allies knew we had to bring an overwhelming amount of force so not only after that one day, but then the British would bring an additional 314,000 men 
And then a few days later, Americans will put ashore an additional 314,000. So after just a few days of D-Day, there were almost a million troops had made that initial uh, push into France. Over, uh, it's like 200,000 vehicles. I mean, it's, it's unreal, the amount of stuff. And of course, as we know, they save the world. That is the most overt uh, idea of conquest we can probably imagine. Now consider the absolute opposite, that when we talk about being conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, God in his wisdom did not do it that way. He could have, but he didn't. He came under the cover of darkness, born in a town called Bethlehem, that was actually prophesied in the, the prophet Micah, foretold that the Messiah would come through Bethlehem. Can't get in the odds of that coming true, but it did. Um, and he came under the cover of night, born in a backwater town to a teenage girl, probably in a cave. And they used an animal trough for, the, for God to be born into. I mean, the mystery and the wonder of that. But essentially, at first, he came in disguise. Because as many of you know, as soon as he was born into the world, Herod is trying to kill him. Even goes through killing all of the firstborn sons in that land to try and take out this foretold son that was going to be born. So he had to come in disguise, if you will, under the cover of darkness. C.S. Lewis so brilliantly says that the world we live in is essentially enemy-occupied territory. And Christianity is a story of how the rightful king has landed. You could say landed in disguise. And he's calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. So you could be asking, how is this world enemy-occupied? What does that mean? There's a lot of things you could say. Why would he come and choose to make a beachhead in enemy-occupied territory? The, answer, the question is, why? Why? I'll, I'm going to answer that in just, just a moment. But first, I'll tell you a story. I went to Disney World uh, like a few months ago, and we had to wear masks, and we had to be, you know, distant and all that, but it was still really fun. I, it was great. And I, we went to Epcot one day. I had not been to Epcot since 1995. Okay, it had been a long time. And a lot had changed at Epcot. One was they added this ride, the Finding Nemo, you know, thing because that movie came out after I was in high school. So I'm like, yeah, man, Finding Nemo ride, let's do it. So I, we get on the ride, we're on, this, we're on a, you know, a shell or whatever, and there's Nemo and Dory, and it's really cool. It's like you're redoing the movie, and I thought, okay, it's over. Well, then you get off the ride, and then there's an aquarium there. Has anybody ever been there? There's an aquarium. I, it's not even on the sign. And the aquarium was huge. I was like, there were dolphins swimming around in these tanks, these huge tanks of water. It turns out that that aquarium is like right at the level of the Atlanta Aquarium in terms of like water volume. And I was just like blown away by the size of this thing. And I'm going to invite you into my thought process a little bit here. This is how my mind works. I'm sitting there and I'm watching, you know, the turtles and there's sharks there and there's all sorts of fish. And I was thinking, I wonder what fish think about, you know, like... Like, what's going on in their minds? I know dolphins are smart. Like, they're clicking each other, and they're talking and moaning or whatever. Like, how does that work? Like, what's going on in their little, their dolphin brains and their fish brains? Are they going to go home and make a bed? Are they going to cook dinner for their family? Like, how does this work, you know? But then I realized that there's one thing that fish never think about, that fish never wonder about. They never, they never feel wet. 
right? Fish never go, oh, it's kind of wet in here right now. You have a towel, like fish don't do that. They're perfectly content in their environment. They love where they are. They know they're in the right place. But here as human beings, we don't feel at home in our habitat. We know there's something wrong with this world, but we're unable to fix it. We know there's something off. Why do people, I'm not talking about religious people, I'm talking about people in general. Why is it in the human heart that we feel wet, so to speak? That, that we long for a place with perfect justice. We, we long for a place where love doesn't die. Why is that desire there? Why do we feel out of place in this world? Everyone knows there's something wrong, that there's a peace we should attain, but we're unable to get there. We're like fish out of water. Well, if our desire for another world is there, it means that we were made for another world. That's why it's there. And we are unable to get there on our own ability, on our own righteousness, on our own goodness. I'm a big fan of... uh, I'm an old, like, rock and roll guy. I like, I'm telling myself, like, I'm old. I mean, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. But I like classic rock. I grew up going to concerts. I still listen to Rock 92 because I like playing the rock trivia thing in the morning. Uh, you can admit in church. It's okay. I'm doing it. I like playing it. I've been tr- trying for years to get through. I finally got through a few weeks ago, and I lost 7 to 4, but I still played, and it was really fun. Um, so I listen to these guys a lot on the radio, and uh, one of them was saying, just this past week, that his preteen daughter, she's in a youth group, some church somewhere in Greensboro, and the daughter had called a family meeting because she said, I want to make sure that you're all going to heaven because I know I'm going now. And he was talking about this on the radio. And, and the, the radio host said, well, I'm, honey, I'm going to go. I'm going to heaven. And she said, how do you know? And he said, well, I'm a good guy. I try and do good things. And I wanted to reach through the radio and embrace this guy and say, that's not going to cut it. That's not how you get to heaven. It's this cliche we hear in our world that I'm a good person. But nowhere in scripture do we see that that is the answer to bridging that gap. We can't. It's not, you can't create your own righteousness, your own goodness. It's everything to do with what Jesus has done for you. And nothing about your own merit. It's by grace alone that we're saved. And your reception of that gift. So I wanted to reach through the radio and go, no, it's because of Jesus. He's conceived by the Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. To reach you and to help you get to that place that you know you're made for, but you can't do anything about it on your own ability. It's nothing to do with your own merit, but on his merit and his imputed righteousness upon your life. It is all about grace. You can't buy your way into it. It's not about your religious uh, ability or what you've done or haven't done. It's purely because of what Christ has done on the cross and your reception of that. That is the most transformative thing you could ever decide. This is why he came, conceived of the Spirit, born of a virgin. He came for rescue and renewal. Rescue and renewal. The Apostle Paul knew this, Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I told the story before, but I'll tell it again for new people. I was in college in Asheville, and like 
As was the case in uh, college towns, you always get these crazy preachers that come onto your campus and they yell at people and tell them they're going to hell. And, you know, they, and they get a little free space. Well, they stick them in a corner. And this guy had a sign that said, you've sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's on the sign. He's telling, pointing at it. And a friend of mine, a Christian, he goes up to him. He goes, yeah, but you're leaving out the next line, which is that we're all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. And then he looked at us and told us that we were going to hell. So, can't please everybody. So yes, we have sinned and we fall short of the glory. But we're justified freely by his grace. Not my own ability to generate grace. This is why he came. For rescue and, re- and renewal. The answer that we're looking for is what God has done for you and for me. And what has God done? God became small. The ideal became real. The supernatural became natural. The powerful became powerless. The immensity of the Godhead became a single cell in the womb of a virgin for you and for me. People would hear that and go, the doctrine of the incarnation, incarnation means in the flesh. It says that the impossible punched a hole and used a single person. God knows this, that, that even though he's done this, people have rubbed shoulders with the king and we rejected him, as Isaiah said, as John wrote. But what does God do? Does he get angry with us? Does he blow up the earth? Does he judge us immediately? No. As that video said, he went all the way to the cross to forgive us. Out of the cross is a symbol that is simply a symbol of love. It used to be a symbol of judgment. But now it's a symbol of love that God knows. This is not our home. And he pursues us being conceived free from sin and born of the Virgin Mary. So we were conceived by the Holy Spirit and now born of the Virgin Mary. Now throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God transforms um, barren women, which is incredible. You see that with Sarah, we saw it with Elizabeth. And just because people say they're impossible, it doesn't mean that God can't do a miracle. I've known people that were praying for children and they had children. I've known people that were praying to adopt a baby and they didn't know how and God provided it. I mean, just because it seems impossible, it doesn't mean that it is. So why does God have to be born sinless? Because he's being born of a virgin. Why does Jesus have to be sinless? In short, it's so that he could be a sinless sacrifice for our sins to atone for your and my sin. Because these sacrifices that were made in the temple for hundreds of years were not cutting it. God was tired of it. Isaiah 1.11, God says, I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams. I don't take delight in your blood of bulls or lambs or goats. That God was, that wasn't enough to atone for the sins of the people. Their, their offering, in a sense, was hypocritical. Their hearts were far from God, but they were professing it with their lips. So he knew he had to do it himself and come and be born of a virgin. He let go of his authority. He let go of his ability as the king, as the prince, if you will, and he became a pauper. And it's because of holy love that he did this. But, okay, I'll admit, though, but he's born of a virgin? I mean, if it's not impossible, it's certainly unprecedented. And I'll admit that. I could see someone asking Mary at the time, so who's the father? You're pregnant? That's great. It's the Holy Spirit. Oh, okay. Maybe we should call Jerry Springer about this one. 
But no, Mary had the same reaction. How is this going to be? I'm a virgin. I've never been with a man. This is impossible. But what does the angel say in response with the message that God gave the angel? What does the angel say? For all things are possible with God. We live in a world that has that same answer. That's impossible. You can't be born of a virgin. But just because it's preposterous, it doesn't mean it's not true. In the, in the secular mind, in, in, that's what it sounds like. It sounds ridiculous. But if you think about it, everyone in this world is making statements of faith. We're all making definitive truth claims, even if you're not a person of faith. And here's what I mean. The famed physicist Stephen Hawking, who was a famous non-believer, non-theist, but a brilliant man, he gave his opinion on the creation of the universe and how matter is created. Now pay attention to these words. This is Stephen Hawking talking. The universe can and will create itself from nothing. Taking God out of the equation, he is making a statement that the universe can make itself. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists. Why we exist. So think about that statement. On its face, that sounds like a religious statement of certainty with really no evidence to back it up. This sounds like miracle to me. This is virgin birth territory statements. Something from nothing? The most brilliant physicist who ever lived? Telling people that we can make our own, we make ourselves? But we can't believe that God would be born in the womb of a virgin? It's not a matter of whether or not we believe this virgin birth story, but which creation story we choose to accept. Which one sounds more plausible? See, God made the laws. He made the rules. I mean, what is science except you're simply discovering what God already made? We don't create anything new. We're just discovering what God has already set in place. And so God can step into the story whenever he wants to. I mean, think about, it's like the author of a book writing himself or herself into the story, breaking the fourth wall, as they call it. That happens. Why can't God do that? Of course he can. He wrote himself into the story. Born of a virgin. As I said, what's God after? Rescue and renewal. That's what he's after. That's what love has always been after. And the prophet Jeremiah spoke this in Jeremiah chapter 31. I'm going to read this at length because the beauty of what these words say, the heart of God. Let's check this out. Jeremiah 31. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. He's, God is saying, I had a covenant with them after Exodus and it didn't work. So I'm gonna make a new covenant with those people. He's talking about a covenant that hasn't been fully realized yet. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will need not to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For in that day, everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. See, the king has made a beachhead, and he has come for the hearts of men and women 
and children. He who had no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And he has come to make all things new. He has come to make everything right. He has come and that, that story, that picture of Jeremiah is a beautiful correlation with, with Revelation 21. It says that in that day, there'll be no more disease or crying or death. Every tear will be wiped away from your eyes. Everyone will know the Lord. Everyone will be in his glory. And he has come for rescue and renewal. For God desires for no one to perish, but he wants all people to come to everlasting life. Yes, our prince has become a pauper, and he has come to make all things new. And we're gonna sing a song called All Things New. That in just a moment, and, and as we do that, we're gonna see, let these words of this song resonate within you that he has come to make all of us new. Let's pray together. Jesus, the, the wonder and the splendor of what you have accomplished on our behalf is honestly more for us to take in sometimes. The immensity of your plan and the, the beauty and the brilliance and the mystery of it majesty God your majesty amongst the mundane the immensity of who you are being born into a single cell and then through that life became the light to all men and women we thank you God that nothing will separate us from your love but your sanctifying grace is present with us continually making us new here and now and once we cross that threshold into the life to come, you are good shepherd, you are door, you the gate, you who will see us through for rescue and renewal, God. Thank you, Jesus, that you're here, that you long intimacy with your people, that you long to be closer than close. And just as you walked those streets and villages so long ago, now you move among your people in the power of your Holy Spirit. You've never stopped healing. You've never stopped restoring. You're always at work on our behalf. And I pray for anyone here and now that has never made commitment to you, God. And this resonating within them what they're hearing today. They know this is true, but they've never made that step to go, it's not my righteousness I point to anymore, God. I confess that I'm a sinner. It's only by your grace that I can be born again. I pray for anyone to make that commitment here and now, to speak openly to you, God. And you will receive them as the son and daughter that they are. We lift you our worship and give you thanks.